Welcome to The Q Word, a podcast about the tips, trends, and taboos of emergency nursing, where we pull the hospital curtain back on issues that emergency nurses and their patients often think about but seldom talk about. You found the Q Word Podcast. Hi, Nisa. Hi, Lisa. We have a super special guest here with us today. I know. I can see him in the studio there with you. Uh, Why don't you tell us all about him? He is the medical director of the Master of Athletic Training Program at Mercer University. Okay. He's the medical director of the paramedic training program at Central Georgia Technical College. And he works in the emergency department at a level one trauma center. It's the second largest facility in the state. He is the Mercer Athletic Department and Macon Mayhem Hockey Franchise Team Physician. <laughs> oh, it's the Bacon Mayhem now? Whatever happened to the uh, Macon Bacon or the Macon Whoopie? Macon Whoopie. We still have the Macon Bacon. That's baseball. <laughs> uh, are you going to try to work your way over to the Macon Bacon? Uh, probably not. <laughs> no. I would just rather just watch the baseball games. Yeah. Well, there's. A, I feel like there's a lot more to fix in football and and yeah, hockey a little than bit, in baseball. Yeah, yeah like injuries. Um, he's it. also double certified, double board certified in emergency medicine and internal medicine. Okay. His specialties are uh, teaching clinical skills, general wellness, and the acute care of athletes. Got it. Uh, so he's super super busy. But in addition to all those things, he is a frequently featured on an emergency medicine podcast. Oh, right. Uh, he's also, we're going to talk a little bit more about that uh, in a minute. He's a frequent presenter at conferences. Um, what's the furthest you've ever gone to present at a conference? Um, presentation was probably Lisbon, Portugal. Ooh, wow, Lisbon. That's, that's yeah. really mm-hmm. sexy. Wow, that's a nice place. I know, I know. Yeah, I um, think the best you ever got to was uh, St. Louis, Missouri last year. <laughs> no, we want to talk about that. <laughs> Um, and he also, fun fact to know, he is involved in the community theater, pretty involved in that. Mm. So what is, what's your favorite role that you've ever played? Oh, um, or you could, you could pick a couple. Well, I, I actually get typecast as uh, big green monsters. Oh, so, okay. um, I've played oh. uh, Frankenstein and young Frankenstein and Shrek. Shrek. Oh, yeah. got it. So, Those big green <laughs> monsters. Okay. Now I know who you're talking about. There they are. Got you it. got it. Yeah. So do you have a role that you've coveted that you've never gotten to play? We could put a plug in. Um, there's actually two. All right. um, number one would be Jekyll and Jekyll and Hyde. Okay. And then Jean Valjean and Les Mis. Yes. Mm, yeah. Yes. Okay. I see that. Those are very lofty roles for you to want to uh, play. Yes. Very much so. Yes. So you guys have just met my friend and colleague, Dr. Matt Aston. Welcome to the Q Word podcast. Yeah, welcome, Matt. Thanks for having me. Do you, do you, uh, so our first question is always, do you say the Q Word on shift? <laughs> um, actually, I do say, uh, I do say the Q Word, and it's always, um, we do not say the Q Word. <laughs> <laughs> so you say literally the Q Word, the but Q not word. the word that begins with the Q. Correct. Love it. There okay, you go. That's it. what the uh, Urban Dictionary says. So we have a lot of awesome topics to tackle today with Dr. Aston, and the first thing that I wanted to hit on with you, um, so there is a physician, his name is Jim Young Kim. He is recently resigned as the president of the World Bank, but he's actually a physician by practice. Then he went on to study anthropology and then became an economist and then the president of the World Bank. So like super Renaissance man. 
Anyway, he has a quote that says that it takes 17 years for a medical discovery to make its way into practice. Mm. So I wanted to kind of explore that with you, some of the sacred cows in emergency medicine, things that we have learned are no longer evidence-based, evidence no longer supports them, but we still routinely do. And just kind of wanted to get your take on maybe why we do them or, um, or what we could be doing better. And... I, I thought about this with you because you, um, when you attend the conferences that you either present at or attend, you often will tweet out pearls from those conferences. And I know your colleagues, nurses and physicians alike, um, are addicted to those tweets. We love reading them and participating um, yeah, by a, proxy. There was a small uproar when Facebook changed their uh, platform to no longer associate uh, the Twitter the I, tweets with it so yeah i think it was more than small i think it was a huge uproar uh yeah we were all super disappointed in that because you were like sorry guys i'm not double tweeting so yeah. one of the things that you tweeted that really stuck with me you once uh quoted william osler from aaem 18 you can tell us what that is um the greater the ignorance the greater the dogmatism mm. so uh i want to talk about the dogs and the cows uh dogmatism and sacred sacred cows yeah, lots of animals in emergency medicine yes, yes they are okay just for clarity for the lay people out there in our audience when you say sacred cows and dogma you mean practices that have long been held um but that should probably be re-examined because maybe there are better ways to do it now uh, it's not necessarily well i guess you would say better because there's there's evidence that shows their benefit um a lot of times you know uh Practice is practice because that's just what always has been done. The, you know, you hear, you hear the term a lot now of evidence-based medicine, which is the newer stuff versus the older stuff, which they termed eminence-based medicine. So okay. really uh, brings up the term that I've heard at some of the conferences called Gottsab. Okay. Good old boy sitting around a table. <laughs> oh, wow. All right. I have never heard that. Yeah, I've never heard that either, but it's such an apt term for what happens. Yeah, it's... I agree. I haven't heard that term before, but I've definitely been a victim of Gottsab. Uh, yeah, I see it all the time here at Harvard. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yep. So, and what is AAEM for clarity? All right, so AAEM is the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. Got it. Um, so they have a conference uh, every year. Um, that's the smaller of the two national uh uh, emergency medicine organizations um, and uh, the hashtag uh, AAEM18 refers to their scientific assembly in 2018 okay okay mm-hmm. uh, and just for fun where was that located yeah uh, uh, <laughs> yeah if he says Dubai then you've been going to the wrong conferences uh, no no yeah, yeah. actually actually no it was in San Diego San Diego oh, another yeah. nice yeah. one yeah nice spot San Diego is a, a nice place to go so the first sacred cow that we want to uh uh tip orthostatic yeah thanks for that pity laugh you're welcome um how about orthostatic vital signs let's talk about the efficacy of using it as a diagnostic tool for nurses or physicians mm. so um so orthostatic orthostatic vital signs um obviously we use those to try and determine if somebody's volume depleted um it still has somewhat of a use but it's very limited um the the way orthostatic vital signs um give us what they what we want them to give is by um, the physiologic response that our body has when you change positions so if someone doesn't have the compliance in their vessels to uh, counteract the change in position you won't get the results that we're looking for so a young person if they are volume depleted 
You mean dehydrated? Uh, dehydrated, yes. Okay. Yeah, dehydrated needs needs more. Uh, you know, they need to fill the tank up. Or hypovolemic. Hypovolemic. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Got it. Both. So if they're lying down, their vital signs may be normal, but it doesn't always work, especially the older the person gets. Mm-hmm. So the older the person gets, the more hardening of the arteries they get, the more arteriosclerosis. Their blood vessels can't compensate. So if somebody stands up that is um, volume depleted or, or is dehydrated, you won't notice that their heart rate goes up or that their blood pressure will drop down. It'll stay the same. How about Mona for MIs? Is that still appropriate for all heart attacks? No. <laughs> all right. So actually that Mona um, dogma um, has been taught for years, especially in the um, uh, ACLS, uh, American Heart Association um, course. Um, so anybody that comes in complaining of chest pain, even if you don't know they're having a heart attack, you would give them Mona therapy. You give them morphine for their pain. You put them on oxygen, give them nitroglycerin and give them aspirin. Okay. Well, so we'll take them individually. Uh, so, and then, then, and then the way that I struck them out, uh, on my own. Um, so morphine. There's, there was a recent study, and, and by recent, I'm talking you know, probably 10 years ago, um, <laughs> that said that, that found that people that were having heart attacks and other um, heart issues, if they got morphine, they actually died. Oh, that's not good. So it was in, there was increased mortality with morphine. Um, so that led to the belief that we should not be giving people morphine with chest pain. So we rearranged that uh, mnemonic into ONAM. Uh, Well, it actually turns out that the reason those people were getting morphine is because their pain wouldn't go away. So because their pain wouldn't go away, they were getting the pain medicine. Well, when they really should have been doing is going to get a procedure to open up the arteries. So, so we still give the morphine if we need to. It's not, you know, automatically we're going to give it, but if we're giving morphine, we're really talking to the cardiologist says, Hey, we need to do something about this. So strike out morphine. Next thing was oxygen. Um, again, another uh, study that came out not too long ago, um, less than 10 years, probably more than five, though, showing that pretty much the same thing. Um, if you give oxygen to everybody with chest pain, you're not necessarily helping them and you can hurt them. They've actually, they actually did MRI studies on people that actually had heart attacks looking at their hearts, determining how much oxygen you gave them. If you, know, if you give them 100% just complete oxygen versus just putting them on what we breathe right now, room air oxygen. And that the amount of oxygen really did not affect the size of the heart attack. So what we've actually learned from that is, and, and oxygen is a drug. Mm -hmm. So it has its side effects. Too much oxygen is not a good thing. Um, So what we've actually learned through all this is if your patient's coming in with chest pain, having a heart attack, if their oxygen level is normal, if you know normal is in this term being greater than 94%, okay. we don't need to put them on any extra oxygen. All right. So if it's less than 94% on their oxygen saturation, then we can put them on some supplemental oxygen. So the idea was, you know, before you've started reexamining this was that if people were having a heart attack, it's because they weren't getting enough oxygen. And so the automatic reaction was just to go ahead and give them oxygen to counteract sure. that, but they just didn't know any better or there was no other things to do. Right. Well, back in, back in the day, well before any of us were doing this, um, back in the 30s, 40s, when somebody was having a heart attack, all you could do was 
put them in a bed and maybe give them some oxygen. Um, there was no such thing as taking somebody to the cardiac cath lab to put a stent in. There was no cardiac bypass surgery. So it was a, let's give them some oxygen and hope they don't die. Um, so, so now that we're fun, now that we have more interventions that we can do, we're actually fine tuning what we, what we should be doing. And, and I think we, there was this, a, a belief for a long time that oxygen was benign and that you just could give them as much as you possibly wanted and it's not going to hurt them. And now we know that that's not necessarily the case either, that it causes endothelial damage and free radicals and all kind of nasty things. Yes. Super, super oxides, which cause bad things. There's actually a term called hyperoxia. Um, which, uh, yeah. So yeah, as opposed to hypoxia, hyperoxia, Hyperoxia. too much oxygen is bad. Too little oxygen is bad. Mm -hmm. So you have to hit the right balance. It is all about balance. It's all about the three bears in medicine. You know, it's got to get it. Goldilocks. It's just right. That's right. That's right. (laughs) That's, that's more, more animals. More animals. (laughs) Bears, dogs, ants, cows. Got it. The the N stands for nitroglycerin. Um, So, yeah, we are still using nitroglycerin. Actually, we we should be using more nitroglycerin. Um, So what nitroglycerin does actually is what we term a vasodilator. So it opens up the blood vessels. And so with somebody having chest pain and we're worried about a heart attack, we're assuming um, that there's a blockage in one of the vessels around their heart. So if we can open up the vessel around that blockage, we can alleviate some of the pain that they're having and get the blood flowing to better uh, to the parts of the heart that aren't getting it. So what about the inferior heart attack and nitro? All right. So that's, that's the one time where nitroglycerin can be not good. All right. So, so if, if you're having a a heart attack on the right side of your heart, on the bottom part of your heart, um, that's the side of the heart that actually pumps the blood to your lungs. And that really depends on how much volume and pressure comes to the heart to make it work really well. Well, if that part of the heart is not working very well and you give them nitroglycerin, again, that's going to open up the blood vessels and the blood doesn't really flow well into that. So you give them nitroglycerin, they really, nitroglycerin, because it opens up blood vessels, can lower their blood pressure. In these patients, it's really going to lower their blood pressure. Okay, so the opposite effect, so, right. So we've talked about before that you can have two patients laying side by side, you know, side by side stretchers, both of them having MIs, and one of them is red and hypertensive and tachycardic and the other one is pale and cool and bradycardic and hypotensive um and so maybe the take-home message is we don't treat all mis the same and one other quick little little uh, dogma thing there is uh if somebody's having a heart attack uh coronary ischemia not getting blood flow does not cause tachycardia Okay. So yeah, so if the, the person is tachycardia has tachycardia with um, some form of ischemia in their heart, there's something else going on as well. Oh. Could so, it be something like anxiety and pain, or is correct. it bigger than that? Okay. Correct. Yeah. Okay. By itself, cardiac ischemia does not lead to tachycardia. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. So what about our favorite friend, aspirin? We love aspirin. We do love aspirin. <laughs> yes. Everybody should be getting aspirin. Yeah, they should put it in the water. Uh, <laughs> oh, wow. There's probably, there's probably a few other things aggressive. that we should be putting in the water, too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, what aspirin does is um, it's a you know, platelet inhibitor. Um, so basically it kills the platelets um, for roughly seven days. So you take it every day. You know, you're, you take one aspirin, your platelets are dead for seven days. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so the th- clot that's causing the heart attack has platelets associated with it. So by giving the aspirin, you're going to prevent a bigger clot forming. Less platelets. And prevent future 
clots forming. Okay. Um, the studies on aspirin are probably the best ones that we have out there showing benefit, survival benefit in heart attacks. Mm-hmm. And they actually said um, the number needed to treat, which you know, in this case is if you treat 100 people with aspirin, um, you, you need to treat 100 people with aspirin to prevent one death from a heart attack. That's, that's just with aspirin alone. Okay, that's so. That's actually pretty good as far as interventions. Yeah. <laughs> who isn't this good for? Like, who shouldn't drink our aspirin? Right. Water? Yeah. So, the aspirin should not be should not be given to kids. Okay. Um, because there is this entity called Ray's syndrome, um, which we don't want to do. It has to do with some uh, eye problems and joint problems. So we don't want to give that to them. Um, and and aspirin also is, uh, like I said, technically it's a blood thinner. So if you take an aspirin, you can bleed uh, easier. So if any history of um, major bleeding other bleeding disorders we probably don't want them on aspirin right okay well no okay. aspirin water for them all right so that's mona for you debunked or rather um, debarked I, I f- uh, thanks to uh, gus in the background uh, no i was hoping you would tell me if you could hear him yeah well i think everyone could hear oh. him <laughs> it's okay today's episode gets starring gus as one of the dogmas for the day <laughs> okay back on track again let's talk about uh backboards uh, okay, those are the things that people are strapped to after they've been like in a car accident and they've been removed from the car and then they have to get uh, immobilized. So, so the usual teaching is anybody that's got any kind of potential spine injury, um, whether it was from a fall, from a car wreck, anything like that, they get put on a long spine board mm-hmm. um, for uh, to move the patient, to transport them. And oftentimes that patient would... You know, a patient's in a car wreck. They get put on a uh, long spine board, get put in an ambulance. They're driven to the hospital on that board. They're seen in the hospital. They've li- they lie on that board up to two, three hours worth wow. of lying on a, used to be wood. Now they're just hard plastic, sometimes metal. Mm-hmm. Well, what they found um, about that is it only takes about 20 minutes of lying on one of those boards where you start getting... Um, pressure uh, ulcers pressure sores yeah uh, on the contact point so you know on the heels on the back of the head and the lower back ow yeah um so that's not good nope <laughs> well what's the real purpose of it of a of a spine board well supposedly it's to keep the spine from moving yeah right well it doesn't do a good job of doing that um oh. So what we've actually learned, and a lot of people are actually completely getting rid of spine boards, uh, a lot of uh, EMS services, um, they will use them only to transfer a patient from uh, onto their stretcher because a normal EMS stretcher, a normal hospital stretcher, provides just as much stability on the spine as putting them on that hard board. Okay. Without the added pain, agitation, respiratory, well, maybe respiratory a little maybe bit. a little bit. You could... Yeah, and, and that's that's a you know because it's not just being put on that spine board. You are strapped to that spine board. Right. Yeah, your legs, your arms are pinned down, your head is pinned down, uh, and you can move, um, but it's not easy. Yeah, I wouldn't like that being strapped down. But also, I think a limp body from car to ambulance wouldn't be good. Uh, what about the Glasgow coma scale being used in just for every single patient? All right. So the Glasgow coma scale is a uh, a measurement um, a calculation to basically determine uh, the neurologic status of a patient is split up into three categories um, uh, eyes verbal motor top highest score you can get is 15 the lowest score you can get is three um, so uh, 
using it for every single patient. Well, it's not necessarily the best thing um, because, um, for example, eyes. Well, if the patient's blind, they may not mm. know. Mm -hmm. Same thing with um, the motor score. Um, you can get six points for that. Six points if you're following all commands and doing everything. Five points if you only can localize to pain. Four points if you just respond to pain. Okay. Well, if I'm having a major stroke and my left side of the left side of my body is not moving at all, right. but you tell me to squeeze squeeze your hand and I do it with my right hand, tec technically I get a six for my motor score. Right. And if I'm talking normal and I have and I'm opening my eyes, I can have a GCS score of 15, which is completely normal, but have had a but have had a massive stroke. And it's just not showing up because of the side of the body that they're testing you on. In in some in some patients. Okay. Yeah, and so it was actually developed for trauma patients, but it's it's such a nice, quick and dirty way to 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 talk about mentation that we we started translating it to everyone, but mm -hmm. it doesn't have all those nuances like an NIH would. Correct. That you would need in a stroke. Correct. Um, so yeah, I, I think quick and dirty, it's not bad. I still use GCS on the trauma patients um, and then in, on any altered mental status type patient that I can't get a full history on, um, that they can't tell me anything or it's not making any sense. Um, so I can, I can do a GCS and give me a decent score, um, uh, get a picture of what they're doing neurologically. So is the concern here um, that GCS on itself isn't enough or that it's a bad assessment uh, tool that maybe it should be used as a jumping off place, but not alone. Um, yes and no. Okay. Um, like I said, just, you know, if you're using it in the right way with the right, right person, um, that may be all that you need. If I've got a patient with a, um, that comes in with a, um, well, some of our decision tools um, develop have GCS brought into it. So if I've got a patient that hit their head or fell or in a car wreck and they have a GCS of 15, I may do nothing with them. But if they have a GCS of 14 or 13, that by itself is an indication to get a CAT scan of their head. Okay. That's right. So, so GCS itself is not bad. It's maybe more the overuse, misuse, inappropriate use. Correct. Um, and I have had people report to me a GCS of zero, oh. which is not possible. The lowest you can get is, <laughs> is a, three. a three. Like this, this mic right here has a GCS of a three. Correct. Um, and I will admit too that I was so tired one time on a call that I somehow managed to assign my patient a GCS score of 18. I think he was answering verbally in multiple languages. He did like an interpretive dance. He was seeing dead people. I don't know. I had to work it out later. How did he get sure. bonus points I think on my, the GCS? My favorite ones are the reports that come in. The patient has a GCS uh, between four and nine. Yes. Oh, that's um, broad. Sometimes he's no. four, and then when he comes around, he's a nine. No, 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 no that's a no, four. That doesn't happen. That's yes. right. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, we got two more. How about Trendelenburg for hypotension? Ah. Standing people on their heads. <laughs> so, yeah. Really? So, Trendelenburg, standing people on their heads uh, because they're hypotensive. So, what Trendelenburg position is, is somebody's lying on the bed. We actually raise the head of the, uh, the foot of the bed and lower the head of the bed. So, they're not really standing on their heads, but, you know, they... Uh Approximately. If they're not paying attention, like they might slide off the bed. Right. They're right. inverted, basically. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So the thinking behind that is you get pooling of uh, blood in your lower extremities. So if you, you're using gravity, so put their feet up, the blood's going to flow back to the middle of the body. Well, um, yeah, sometimes <laughs> a little bit. It's not as much as you would think. 
Okay. Um, we actually do. Um, that is, it's a temporary measure to use if somebody's hypotensive while you're getting ready to do something else. Okay. So if their blood pressure is low, um, it's actually useful for um, that concept. Not Trendelenburg is useful for assessing. Um, volume status, uh, something we call a passive leg raise for a critically injured patient, critically ill patient. Um, if you have an arterial line looking at their blood pressure, you can actually lift their legs up um, while they're lying on their back and watch the change in their blood pressure um, to determine if they could get some fluids. Okay. Um, and the other useful um, uh, place for Trendelenburg position is if we're getting ready to put a central line in. If we're going to put a, a big catheter in their neck, um, actually standing them on their head a little bit does engorge those vessels in the neck so we can see them better. Okay. Uh, but again, it's a temporary thing um, f for you to do something else. All right. So if, if the patient was hypotensive and not a trauma, so they're just a medical patient, could you get the same effect just by putting two pillows under their legs and not necessarily doing the whole body tilt? Correct. You could? Yeah, yes. Okay, so uh, if there's no contraindication, you could do just as well. It, it, it does go back to that old old thing, you know, um, that you know your, your grandparents would tell you if you, you know, passed out, well, somebody passes out, lift their legs up, lift their feet up, raise their feet above their... Yeah, I always learned that, get the blood to their head. Yep, it's that. Mm -hmm. That's what exactly what it is. Raising their feet above their heart, you know, because you are using gravity. It's just not as big of an effect as some people would think. Okay. And we kind of mentioned this when we were talking about backboards, but the people that we have in Georgia um, and the southeast are a little fluffy, <laughs> and so if you put them in Trendelenburg, that big, that, uh, that big belly uh, goes right onto their lungs. Correct. It can it can, it can yes. tip back onto their lungs and, and cause and more then problems. And they can breathe or they stop breathing. Right. Um, the, big, the bigger you are, when you stop breathing, the harder it is to get you to breathe again. Okay, so the last sacred cow is the, that we always reach for atomidate and sucks for intubation. Ah, uh, yes. Atomidate and succinylcholine. So what, yep. what are your thoughts on RSI drugs? Um, I love RSI drugs. <laughs> they make patients do what you want them to do. Yes, they do. Uh, <laughs> all right. So, um, so rapid sequence intubation um, involves two different medications. You have a, um, a sedative and a paralytic. Okay. Um, in this case, the tomidate is a sedative, succinylcholine is your paralytic. Okay. Uh, we'll take each one individually. So, um, atomidate is a great sedative uh, in a critically ill patient that you're going to have to intubate. The big thing with atomidate, only, and it's only been shown in a couple of studies, that is if you, it, and it's not a big deal with a single dose, but if you give them multiple doses, um, it, you can cause adrenal suppression. Okay. Um, you can you can knock out their adrenal glands and all the associated hormones that go along with that that actually we need to live. Sounds bad. Um, so along those lines, somebody that has Addison's disease, um, primary uh, uh, adrenal insufficiency, mm -hmm. probably would not be the best person to give Atomidate to. But uh, those that's not very common. So Atomidate's pretty good. You can use it in most people. All right, so let's switch to the paralytic. Um, so succinylcholine um, has been used forever uh, to paralyze somebody. And the reason it was used mostly is because it was very quick acting. Um, you can give that medication and within 45 to 60 seconds, the patient is paralyzed. Wow. Along those lines, it doesn't last very long. So about a minute um, after you give it, the patient's paralyzed, but within 10 to 15 minutes later, they're moving again or okay. breathing on their own again. Okay. So that's why it was used a lot. But um, we found out it's got some side effects with it. 
succinylcholine actually has been shown to increase the endocranial pressure a little bit. Um, so if somebody's got a, a, a bleed in their head or if their blood pressure is really, really high, um, we don't want to increase their blood pressure any more than, uh, than we need to to keep perfusing because we can make the bleeding worse. Right. Um, the other thing about succinylcholine is it very, very slightly increases the potassium. Um, so normally that's not a big issue, um, in normal patients, but in patients that are on dialysis that haven't been dialyzed for a while, um, in patients that have been burned, um, severe burns or in patients that have a neuromuscular junction disease, even increasing the potassium just a little bit can send them into cardiac arrhythmias and they can die just by giving them the medicine. Yeah, that's not good. Yeah. So, um, so just because of those reasons, number one, it's short acting too with those side effects. There have been many times we don't want to use um, succinylcholine. So we have other drugs that we can use that take a little bit longer to work to start the paralysis, but they last up to an hour. So that allows you to get more stuff done. Okay, so the other thing that I've heard about sucks, and you kind of alluded to it, is the, the fact that it, it only lasts about eight or 10 minutes. Um, one of the reasons why people quote that as a benefit is if this airway goes south, and this was sort of an elective type deal, then the patient will resume their own, um, their own respirations after 10 minutes or so, and then you can kind of drop back and punt. The flip side of that argument is if it's a difficult airway, they need something and here you are in the middle of trying your two or three tricks and now your patient is coming out of their paralytic. So it would actually, some people actually argue that you would want the longer acting paralytic in a more difficult airway where other people use that as to say sucks is good in a difficult airway. Where do you fall on that? Um, well, the way I, the way I fall on that is uh, I would rather have the longer acting one. Um, well, actually I, I don't care. Um, yeah, I'll usually, I'll just because it's easier and most people are more familiar with the dosing stick with succinylcholine, um, because, um, of the way that I treat the airway. Um, and this is something that's come through the social media stuff and is trying to get out there, but, um, uh, the method of handling difficult airways. If I'm going to try and innovate a patient, if I can't do it, I'm going to get something else. Um, I'll switch from a, a direct laryngoscopy, looking at it myself, to using a video laryng laryngoscope. I'll grab a bougie, which is you know to help blindly do it. So, and that kind of is a good uh, a good conclusion to this discussion. We've talked about why these things are debunked and what the evidence actually says, and which one of these have stood the test of time, like aspirin. What I want to know is if you could get rid of any one of these uh, sacred cows, which one would it be? Yeah, if you had a magic Ooh. wand, which one would you... Like, uh, yeah, you get to rewrite the policy. What what would you get um, rid of? <laughs> i got to remember the cows because I usually forget the cows. Um, um, <laughs> orthostatic vital signs, uh, Mona, uh, backboards. backboards, GCS, Trendelenburg, Tom yeah, Bates. It would, it would be the backboards. Um, mm. Yeah, it's, uh, and we, we've done well with it. Uh, it, it. We're seeing less and less of it, and we're doing really well about getting the patients off the backboard right away. Um, but even at our place, a trauma patient comes in on a backboard, they're staying on that backboard, you know, probably a good 20 to 30 minutes longer than they should. 
So, um, so that, that leads to kind of my question, which is, why is it that we cannot shake these? In spite of the evidence, why is it that we can't get away from doing these things? Yeah, it's so hard to yeah, change. Well, that goes back to your quote from the beginning. It takes you know 17 years to really get the data into practice. Mm. Um, so that is one of the things that the whole social media part of uh, medicine is working on. Um, we call that the knowledge translation window. So when the knowledge is... Um, discovered actually putting it into practice okay um, so I think we've actually done well over the past couple of decades we've actually got it under 10 years instead of 17 years oh, good. Yeah. but the reason that it you know takes that so long well it, it'll take five or ten years to get a good quality study done well once it's completed then it may take a year two years to even get it published Wow okay well people don't read journals as much as they used to anymore so, so, but so, about you know, even if it, if they were reading it right the day that it came out, the data is already two, three years old. What we're doing with the social media part of it is we're we have people, and I'm not sure how they have time to do this. Um, every day they're looking at stuff. A new article comes out within two hours. They have a podcast and a blog post about it. Wow. So, so because of that, we're cutting that knowledge translation window down. One of my friends in Canada, um, his name is Ken. His wife is named Barbie. No, get out. Yes. They <laughs> but, are but Ken they're and Canadian. Barbie. That's the most American thing and, I've ever heard. Right. They're Canadian and they're both about six one and blonde. So you cannot wow. make this up. Wow. So, Jeez, but, that's um, just patently unfair. So, um, but one of the things he does with his podcast is you know, his, his thing is trying to cut that knowledge translation window down from 10 years to one year. So a lot of the, the current social media stuff uh, are talking about articles that have come out in the last year, sometimes within the last month, sometimes that day. What's, what's the name of Ken's podcast? Ken's podcast is The Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Skeptic's okay. Guide. And do we, uh, can we, do you think he'd mind if we linked it? Oh, not at all. No, no, no. He, he does a, a weekly podcast, and he's very big on 80s music. So whatever <laughs> right. the topic is, he has a, a theme song at the beginning from the 80s that fits along with what he's Love doing. Love it already. Yeah. Getting it down to a year, a month, a same day. Okay, but isn't there a concern uh, about that? Uh, just to play devil's advocate here, I know that academic journals uh, are a, require a lengthy process of peer review and editorial cycles before anything gets released, but there is a safeguard that's built into that uh, information isn't being released onto the world too soon. Um, we certainly see with the internet how people have a tendency to glom onto new information and declare that truth and then act on that information without giving themselves enough time to really see if things work. Um, is that not a concern uh, with getting information out too quickly? Yes, that that is definitely one of the the uh, possible uh, uh, cons to to using social media, because the stuff that they are getting their information from is the peer reviewed information, but it is their interpretation of it, and it's only their interpretation of it. Okay. Um, so it doesn't have that peer reviewed aspect to it. However, um, there's a thing called post um, production peer review mm. or um, so the comment section on all these blogs and podcasts can really make a difference um, so uh, pointing out flaws in the in the presenters um, thought process um, bringing up new ideas okay sort of the, so, uh, the, the Wikipedia approach to 
information. This is crowdsourcing. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Right, right. Now, uh, some some of the bigger podcasts um, and uh, and ours um, that we do with uh, Rebel EM, I would not call that one of the bigger podcasts, but we do it anyway. <laughs> um, we, we, we actually have a peer review process before we post anything. So... Um, if you look at any of our blog posts, you'll see the author who wrote it and all the stuff and down the bottom of it, peer-reviewed by so-and-so. Got it. Um, so we've got a little bit of that um, out there. Um, the other big problem with using all this um, up-to-date um, new information and uh, new data is what if you're not ready for that information? Like um, not, so not trained or... We, we get, we've had... Uh, in the past, medical students and you know interns, early residents, hearing something that's said on a podcast and then going and trying and doing it, ah. um, and their atten- their attending position, their supervisors don't like it, and that can be for one for two, one of two reasons. Number one is because um, it's right and they don't want to be wrong themselves, <laughs> so it's a little ego there. But two, um, it's not the right thing for that patient. Yeah. Okay. So you've got to have the basic understanding, the basic know-how of the general process of what's going on to fine-tune with these opinions and new data. Yeah, so, like be on the cutting edge, learn something new, but you correct. Know, be, be and, responsible about it. And any good podcast or blog um, post that goes out there, they're going to tell you to don't take their word for it. Go find the original literature and read it yourself. Oh, yeah, us too. Right. So guys, don't take our word for it. Go and find the original literature. Do not trust anything that I have said today. That's Go right. look it up yourself. That's right. That's really actually good advice. Yeah. So so let's talk about your podcast that you're involved in. This is called Rebel Cast. That's the podcast. And then Rebel EM is the uh, blog. Correct. So you've got both the podcast and the blog. Yes. Some really good information. And from my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, I've listened to it a lot. The uh, format is you typically review two ar- journal articles, very recent ones that are fairly closely related, mm-hmm. mostly closely related. Sometimes they're not, but usually they are. Um, and it's uh, three ER physicians, one from Texas, one from New York, and then you from Georgia. Mm-hmm. And then you guys kind of discuss Basically, you're giving kind of the spark notes, maybe, of the journal article. Yes, um, it's doing a, um, a critical appraisal of the literature. So um, basically going through what they did, why they did it, how they did it, uh, and then discussing the strengths and limitations of it, and then kind of given what they take, what they say their bottom line is, what their take-home points are, and then what our interpretation of the take-home point is. Right. So would this actually change your practice and your, you know, or or does it? need to be further investigated or correct yeah yeah so So, that's the way we used that's the way we used to do it we're kind of revamping some things so um in the past uh, several months we've actually had more interview type stuff um, or have guest speakers giving things and now we're actually um branching out a little bit um we've started a what we call rebel core which is a core content podcast in emergency medicine um with a couple of um uh one of our original uh swami from uh, new york is on there but one of uh uh, uh, a new a new person with the blog and uh, Jenny Beck Esme. Um, so they're going through the core content. I'm going to start com- uh, doing that a little bit because I have to recertify my board certification coming up uh, soon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See, you're looking oh. forward to that. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, you've made an appearance on this show before. Oh, yeah. You know, we have, and we so we did reference uh, your breakdown of the paramedic two trial from Rebel uh, Rebelcast, right. and that's linked, and we'll link again in our show notes for this episode as well. Yeah, it's a too epi or not to epi episode. That's right. Yeah. No, you the, got it. The epi episode. There you go. You got <laughs> it. And, and we also have our own conference as well. So uh, uh, re- rebellion in EM. 
And uh, what does REBEL stand for? REBEL right, so, is the acronym. So too. originally, um, the guy that started it, my best friend from Residence, Salim Razai, uh, he's the guy in Texas. Um, we were residents together, so uh, we had always talked about doing something like this, and he actually made it happen. So REBEL stood for Razai's Evidence-Based Evaluation of the Literature in Emergency Medicine, REBEL, Rebel EM. Well, since we've grown so much, the R has changed to um, realistic, rational. It's something that's not his name anymore. Gotcha. So, but it still works. Gotcha. But what well, he he is known as the Rebel. So pe- huh. people know him as the Rebel. Swami Swami is, and and I'm Mr. Security. Mr. Yeah. Why are you Mr. Security? Well, I'm six four, three hundred and thirty pounds. And I was a bouncer in medical school. Wow. So, <laughs> okay, yeah. that works. So um, I think we should get cool nicknames too. Mr. Security, Swami, the Rebel. Yeah. We need something like that, Lisa. I definitely want a nickname. We're definitely missing out. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm the sidekick. Um, you're the you're the you're the boss. I'm the sidekick. Oh, that's a terrible idea. What? Terrible idea. Let's do it. So I I have another quote for you that I want to <laughs> kind of continue this discussion of social media and healthcare. So we've decided that. The sacred cows and the dogmatisms um, are partly because of sort of just trickle down, like getting the information out there and getting them into practice. I would guess that medical legal kind of plays something into it. Mm-hmm. And um, so it is a, a, a it were it was for me a bit of a learning curve to realize that something like Twitter or Facebook could be a place where I could get up to date information that might change my practice. That seems counterintuitive but in fact it's happening and um foam and foam ed is one of the ways that it's happening and so not a lot of nurses in my um circle are familiar with foam i wasn't so i want you to talk a little bit about that but i want to give a quote from the godfather of foam (laughs) just another freaking cool nickname where are we missing out and he is super cool the doctors have all the fun i know so you this is a this is a I've heard this quote over and over and over again. You probably know what I'm going to say. This is Joe Lex, an emergency physician, the godfather of foam. And he says, if you want to know how we practice medicine five years ago, read a textbook. If you want to know how we practice and practice medicine two years ago, read a journal. If you want to know how we practice medicine now, go to a conference. But if you want to know how we will practice medicine in the future, listen in the hallways and use foam. Okay. And foam stands for free open access to medical education. So it, Foam is the concept. Foam Ed is the hashtag. So tell us everything you know about foam and why it's a big deal. So foam started in 2012. um, And um, I think uh, it actually started out as foam on a pint of Guinness. Uh, And they just made it work. So Oh, oh, like actual foam. Yes. yes, I um, love it. The creamy, creamy head. Yes. Yes. They were in a pub in Ireland. um, The best. uh, Yes. uh, They came up with the idea of uh, foam and foam ed. So so basically what this is, and and this is a counter movement to the uh, preconceived notions of social media. When people hear social media, they're thinking the Kardashians and Justin Bieber. And I'm I'm probably dating myself there, too. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Um, I think those are still relevant. Yeah. Well, as someone. Maybe. Maybe <laughs> relevant. Yeah. Um, so so that's the thing. Twitter's not just for, you know, stalking celebrities. So um, it's, a, it's a communication platform. So people um, in emergency medicine, emergency medicine where it started, emergency medicine, critical care, was branching out some to internal medicine, um, surgery, OBGYN. Um, but started with emergency medicine and critical care. Um, people having conversations, um, 
when they would create uh, a blog post or write some kind of uh, article about it, they would push it out there onto the, uh, onto Twitter so to disseminate their information instead of having to wait um, for a journal to pick it up. Okay. Um, it's also useful for what we call live tweeting. This is what I do at conferences. Um, instead of sitting there with a pad of paper and taking notes for myself, I can um, use the power of the thumb, um, and which is hard because I have large thumbs, um, <laughs> to put a tweet out um, of uh, different pearls that are being uh, dropped at these conferences. So, oh, so like a live play-by-play play yeah. of what you're seeing. Well, and, and what's great about that is if you are a new grad nurse and you are on a budget and you can't afford to go to sexy places like St. Louis, um, (laughs) you can, you can sort of live vicariously through these and we can all share the information that we're getting. You know, even if you've set aside a nice fat conference budget, like nerds like you and I who like to go to those, Mm -hmm. uh, you can't go to all of them. I've tried. It's not going to happen. Budget wise, time wise, you just can't. And so this is a great way to, to share the, share the pearls to, uh, to the whole community. There's always a conference going on some, uh, somewhere around the world, some organizations having their conference. So um, the way to do it is, you know, all of these, you know, organizations have their own Twitter handles. And uh, they come up with their own hashtag. So you can just follow the hashtag and get all the information. So like for AAM18, you can follow that hashtag and see everything that somebody puts out with that on it. So it wouldn't be just me. I think on our social media team there, we had about uh, four or five people uh, doing the tweeting. But there are other people as well for the American College of Emergency Physicians, um, the ASEP18, uh, which was also in San Diego. One was in February. One was in October. Stuff going to San Diego twice. Yeah, yeah. Um, poor, yeah, poor you. It was, it was horrible. Hard, hard life. Our social yeah. media team, social media team there was close to twenty people. It was a much bigger conference. So wow, that's great. Um, so, but you wouldn't see just things just from us. It'd be anybody, from any attendee, anywhere. right? Even people not at the conference you know, that are responding or or adding on to things. You you can get that conversation going. Right. So. Love it. So, um, in my foam ed experience, which is very very limited. What I have noticed, and tell me if this is just my experience or if you find this to be true too, I have noticed that paramedics are all in. I have noticed that ER physicians are all in. And the group that I've noticed that's awfully quiet is the nurses. Is that my experience or? Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say the EMS world is all in yet. Um, okay. But they are, they, they have uh, drank the Kool-Aid a little bit more than the nursing side has, but um, so what would you say to the nurses that are listening? What is What would be our role in getting involved in foam ed? I know there's a, a movement called Phone, which is free open access for nursing. And I know there's also a little bit of controversy about that because some people say that the whole point of Phone is to be one cohesive healthcare group and not splinter off into these these silos. Yeah. Well, eh. that, that's, the, you know, there's the foam ed hashtag, but there's also foam US, foam peds, foam CC, you know, so There's foam talks. You know, so it's so happening it, naturally. It's, it's anyway. been happening for years. So, um, so, but, but the beauty of it is, it's whatever you're interested in, you can go go and do it. So, um, the the way um, I think you you asked me to, uh, if there were any posts on the Rebel site that would be good for nursing, and I was like, yeah, not really because of the way we do things, but it is useful to see what the doctors are doing um, and why they're doing it or what they should be doing. And perhaps you might suggest something they they should do 
that won't kill their patient. So yeah, yep, that mm, teamwork, yeah. And yeah. all that stuff. So um, all right, so we give us those hashtags again. I'm looking right now. All right, so if you go on Twitter and you can search the hashtag oh, #FOMED F O A M E D Hashtag #FOMED Hashtag #FOMED Great. And then all the splinter ones off of that. All the splinter ones off um, of that. Phone phone ed. That's nursing. Um, Again, I don't find it to be super robust, but we can work on that. Got to start somewhere. That's mm-hmm. right. And the emergency medicine, I mean, there's, you know, dozens and dozens of blogs and podcasts in emergency medicine. Well, it all started with one. Right. You know, so. Are there any that come to mind that you would recommend for our listeners, that, some favorites that they should follow on Twitter or blogs they should be reading? Um, there is, well, for on Twitter, there's a uh, handle, I think it's called FOMED for Beginners. Oh, um, that and that's uh, actually Foam Starter is their name, is their Twitter handle. Um, so F O E M S T A R T E R. And if you look at theirs, they have 3,475 people following them, but they only follow 31 people. Um, and those 31 people are the suggested. Um, oh, it's like a starter so pack. There actually things says FOMED Twitter neophytes list of 30 people to follow who maximize clinical pearl to vacation photo ratio. <laughs> nice. Okay, balance. foam yeah. starter. Hashtag foam starter. That's your starter pack. Yeah, I'm, so, not, on, I'm not on that list, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll work on that. So so nurses are going to get a Twitter account. Okay, Do go it. for it. They're going to follow the Kardashians or whoever is their uh, pop culture person, and they're going to go to foam starter. Yeah. And get this starter pack. Awesome. They can follow it. the keyword podcast on there too. We do have a Twitter handle. And if you want to get more than just those thirty, those you know, those people look and see who they are following. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's how you branch out. That's how you branch there. out. Very yep. good. The internet community. Um, okay. And one of the other social media things that I uh, actually heard in one of your podcasts, the Rebel EM podcast, this was your review. It's been it's been a few years now, but this was your review of the AHA twenty fifteen recommendations. So this was a uh, what was it? Fifteen part uh, okay. publication, massive. Yes, you know, and then you guys did us all the favor of breaking down your top five recommendations. Um, and I think it's a thirty-minute podcast, maybe mm-hmm. twenty-five. So very, very um, palatable. One of the things that I did not know that the AHA recommended that you guys reiterated is, is social media related. And it's called the Good Sam app. So um, I teach ACLS, and I've been teaching it for a long time, and I'm familiar with the 2015 updates, but I'd never heard of this until I listened to your to your episode. So tell us about the Good Sam app. All right, so the Good Sam app um, is short for Good Samaritan, um, and it started somewhere overseas. I don't know if it was England or Australia, because, you know, they're, no, they're, they're not the same. the same, but they do a lot of stuff together. <laughs> um, they talk a lot of So like. what it basically is is... is uh, you have the app on your phone, and it knows where your location is. And anytime there is uh, a 911 call, uh, or for overseas people, 999 call, um, for cardiac arrest, it notifies that that, that person, because um, it'll have the proximity, GPS coordinates and everything. So um, if you have the app on your phone and, or open, you'll get a notification that, hey, there's a cardiac arrest nearby. Wow. And you sign up for it if you are somebody that's ACLS certified or even CPR certified. Yeah, so it can give you the location of where that patient is if you can provide some help. So a lot of times the bystanders that can get there faster than EMS, and that is one of the things that has shown benefit and survival in cardiac arrest is bystander CPR. So this is a an app that is 
uh, encouraging bystander CPR. So there's two apps that you can get when I looked. You can get Good Sam Alert, which is for lay people. So that's why you can call 911 or 999 through that. Yep. And then for folks like us who are licensed and are willing, we can sign on to the Good Sam Responder and that mm-hmm. says, follow my location. And if that comes up, let them know I'm here and I'm available Country and willing, yeah. the willing part, yes. uh, to go and assist. Correct. I just think it's... Uh, it's, a, it's really interesting that the American Heart Association has jumped on the social media. And it's a, it's a free app it's free. For, for either the responder or the, per, the lay people just for the alert. Mm-hmm. There's a bare minimum information that they want from you in there. Um, so super easy to, to participate in. I love that. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about is, um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there are some difficult patient populations in the ER. Where, where, where do you find these difficult patients? <laughs> ubiquitous they're everywhere everywhere uh and so they're very frustrating for for nurses and i i know they're frustrating for er physicians as well so i kind of want to hear your take on how you treat these specific populations and they're they're frustrating and difficult for different reasons and we can talk about those reasons um so i want to know medically how you would treat them and then also kind of the psychosocial way that you would handle these populations so let's start with your drug seekers this opioid crisis that we're in just in general, any anybody that comes to the emergency department um, for whatever reason needs something. So uh, they're in search of something. So my underlying job is to identify what that need is. Is it uh, antibiotic for their um, bronchitis, which they don't need, or is is it the cardiac cath for their heart attack they're having, or is it a, a good slap on the wrist because they should they were doing something they shouldn't have, um, and then giving them their antibiotics for their STD? <laughs> um, so, um, so this is it's the same thing with um, with uh, drug seekers. Um, so, why are they seeking the drugs? You know, is this something that they are just trying to get high? Um, for the fun of it, or have they become addicted to it because of some trauma that they've gone through? Mm, so, um, try and uh, what, what I try and do, and this definitely does not happen all the time is, you know, look beyond what they're asking and try and find what they actually need. And then what can I, what can I do to provide that for them? Um, is it, uh, and in that case, it may be giving them pain medicine until they can go see somebody um, because withdrawal from pain medicine is not fun. Um, but you know, even if I am giving them medicine, what I'm trying to do is get them on the path to getting treatment for that. So um, getting them referred to the right people, having our um, social workers, case management people get involved um, in uh, helping them. So um, it's, it's not about just putting a Band-Aid on it and give, on the, giving them a prescription and sending them out only to have them come back or go to another emergency department the next day for the same thing. Right. Okay. And that leads me to my second difficult and sometimes frustrating population and who is often mistaken for drug seekers, and that is the sickle cell population. Yes. So talk to me about the, the, the trickiness of dealing with the sickle cell population. All right, the trickiness of the sickle cell patient. Well, the, that's because they are tricky. Um, Specifically yeah. pain management, well, I would yeah, say. Um, because the hallmark of treating somebody in sickle cell crisis is pain medication and strong pain medication using narcotics, using opioids. Now, the problem is you have some sickle cell patients that are drug-seeking, um, that they come in just to get the medications. Well, that puts us in a in a tight space because... I can't assume, even if I know 
that that's what they're there for. Um, I can't assume that that's why they're there. Right. Uh, because sickle cell disease is a real disease. Mm-hmm. People die. The The average lifespan of sickle cell patient is 40. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, so if I had sickle cell, I'm, I'm past my lifespan already. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so treating these patients um, aggressively is the hallmark. So... Um, one of our strongest medications is, you know, Dilaudid um, for pain. Um, people give half a milligram or one milligram, and that's those are big doses. It's like, you know, 10 times the dose of morphine. Well, sickle cell patients, true sickle cell patients coming in, um, or, and, and we give like one milligram every four hours. Well, if I've got a true sickle cell coming in, I may give them two milligrams up front, and then an hour later give them two more. And then I, and as long as they're breathing, you know, these patients build, build up a high tolerance. That's right. Um, and I think that's where the frustration and the mis, uh, the mislabeling comes mm-hmm. in. And so someone will order a half a milligram of Dilaudid for a sickle cell patient. It would be like giving you one milligram of morphine that they might as well doesn't just... doesn't do anything. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah. Um, and so... And, and I think also we're super uncomfortable with giving one, someone two milligrams of Dilaudid every hour, although this population needs it. They yeah. got to have that. Um, and the other thing that you mentioned about their lifespan of being of 40, uh, so when I teach triaging sickle cell patients, I always teach nurses to, to in your mind, double their age. Mm-hmm. So if you have a sickle cell patient who comes in who's 30, treat them like you would a 60-year-old in any other population because wow. it's just a rough way to say that they are you know, as far as the lifespan of a sickler, they're, they're toward they're the end. They're farther down the road. They're in the yeah. geriatric sickle cell uh, lifespan. Yeah. So I think it's a, a highly misunderstood population, and then it, it does often lead to drug-seeking behavior, mm-hmm. which is frustrating as well. So it's a, it's a... Yeah, and it's very frustrating for us in the acute setting because a lot of the stuff that we do uh, in the emergency room for sickle cell patients is just putting a Band-Aid on what, on, on what they have. So um, we're not really doing anything you know, other than kind of masking things. Um, and if they're not, on the, they're not following up with their hematologist uh, outpatient and getting on the right maintenance things um i I can't i can't fix it anyway but there's really not a whole lot i can do other than just dope you up right that's right and then this one's my all-time favorite how about the non-epileptic non-neurogenic seizure activity which is the fancy new term for the pseudo seizure yeah people that have some kind of uh it's not really a mental some kind of emotional issue that leads them to have seizures well that was the original thinking um, it turns out that some of these people actually do have some form of seizure or um, some seizure activity. Um, so, um, and we can't really say that's what it is in the emergency room. Um, so the, the way to diagnose the pseudo seizure or the non-epileptic, whatever they call it now. Um, actually, I think that's the one, that's one they renamed it um, uh, a really phallic name. Um, oh, yeah, I got to look it up and remember it. So yeah, you got to get back yeah, to doing that. It's P N E S. Oh, yeah. P N E S. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's, okay. It's penis. Yeah. yeah. Let, me, uh-huh. let me look it up. Then. Oh, they so, got the penis. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's psychogenic non-epileptic seizure. That's it. Psychogenic it. non-epileptic yes. seizure, yeah. aka penis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. Uh, they are not caused by abnormal brain electrical discharges. They are a manifestation of psychological distress. Yeah. So they had to name it something. The, <laughs> yes. <laughs> We're going to talk 
<laughs> we're going to talk about penises. We're going to talk now. about penises on the keyboard yes. podcast. Yes, yeah, please. Tricks, taboos, yeah. so, it fits. No, but that, that is something um, the, the non epileptic seizure activity, the patient that comes in, um, we can't say for sure, um, usually in the emergency department, that this is not a neurologic problem, that is just a, an emotional reaction. Um, even if you know they're doing this activity and you take their hand and drop it on, you know, and they move it off their face, and that time you can't really say that that's that they're faking it, so to speak. So, right, right. Um, they do need to go. Somebody they still need to have neurology follow up, outpatient testing with EEGs and that type of thing. Um, once somebody does come, and even somebody that has been diagnosed with the non-epileptic seizure activity, they can still have real seizures. Mm-hmm. Um, that just because you have one doesn't mean you can't have the other Mm -hmm. so um we still need to again goes back to the question why are they there right right. um and what we can do to to fill that need okay so it could be a psych issue it could be attention seeking behavior it could be neurological that's Um, still serious either way someone is having an emergency for some reason and we have to pinpoint which it is yeah Mm -hmm. you you can't just dismiss it Um, Okay, so I want to wrap it up by talking about the unique work relationship between ERMDs and ER nurses. And really, this would include the whole team, the respiratory therapists that are there, the patient care techs. Uh, But I think that the relationship between nurses and physicians in the ER is a little bit different than the relationship between nurses and physicians in any other hospital area and you've been internal med as well so you can Mm -hmm. you can tell me what you think about that and some of the reasons is because I think I mean you guys are there with us 24 7 so we don't have to call you on the phone and say I need you to come down and look at my patient you're in the room you know down the hall I can come and get you Mm -hmm. Um, and so we do have a tight close working relationship and and the the population of patients that we treat kind of necessitates that so I had a co-worker who found out that we were doing this interview and he asked me to ask you this question and his question is, at what point is it okay for nurses to call an MD by their first name? And he's saying specifically in the work setting, mm-hmm. not, you know, when we're all at the rookery having a burger, yeah, but um, in the work setting, <laughs> so what, uh, it, is it considered unprofessional? When do we call you by your first name? When do we don't? And I know it's going to be physician specific, but right. I kind of want to hear your thoughts on it. And I think the point that he's making is that we do have this kind of weird fuzzy line mm-hmm. where you guys are the boss, you have a higher a higher license level than us, but at the same time, we're shoulder to shoulder and we have this sort of family team environment. And I think this question sort of speaks to that. So right. what do you what do you think? Is, is this like a respect thing? Is that what we're talking about here? Right. Or, or the perceived respect. Right. Okay. Um, so, okay. yeah. So, um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, again, every, everybody, every doctor is going to be different. You know, I'm one of those that I don't care. Um, yeah, you know, I'm, so yeah. Mr. Security, Dr. Security, yeah. either way, it's fine. <laughs> or, right. or, hey, you, um, you know, Shrek, Shrek. <laughs> Some people call me bear. Bear. Frankenstein. Yes. Yeah. Oh, Frankenstein's yes, monster, yes. of course. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, no, but I think, uh, so, so I'm perfectly fine, you know, going by my first name in the emergency department. Um, until um, we're in a patient room in front of a patient. Of course. Because um, I think the patient still expects that. Yeah, that um, makes sense. They, they, they still, uh, you know, I, I, I don't wear a white coat, um, um, but they still see me as the doctor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and the nurse as the nurse. Mm-hmm. So. Um, well, there's an authority thing there. It 
to me, it, it paints the wrong picture to um, and the and to the patient, and they'll question um, our competence. Um, really, yes. are we are we really good at what we're doing? If we go, if we're on a first name basis in front of the patient, step out of the room, I'm fine. If you call me mad, I don't have a problem with that at all. Um, and actually, um, you know, staying at the nurse's station, you know, like if you came up to me and said, hey, Dr. Aston, I was like, Nurse Nisa. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. To be a smart, yeah. yeah. Well, that's what I call her all the time. So like, she answers to yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that I've noticed that that nurses do to kind of bridge that, especially in a patient who is, or I'm sorry, a physician who is a generation older is they'll develop a cute nickname that's yep. still doctor something, but not mm-hmm. their. So anyway, it's a, yeah. it's just a kind of an interesting phenomenon. Oh yeah. Um, and then the other thing that I want to know is um, when you are working in the emergency environment, what are some of the characteristics of an ER nurse that you, you find really sort of your favorite to work with or the, the easiest to work with or the best for the patient, the best for the team. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is, what are some of that? What would that look like? Uh, so it's, it's somebody, one that cares that they're there. Um, that's going to be the number one thing. They're not just there to get the paycheck. Um, cause if they were just there for the paycheck, they'd be doing something else. <laughs> true. Um, uh, yeah, don't get, you guys don't get paid near as what you should. Uh, also true. true. <laughs> Speaking nice. of truth, hashtag truth. Um, so, so having the passion to be there, um, and, and really wanting to take care of the patient, even those difficult patients, um, putting that mask on you when you go in the room and caring for them. Um, so having that passion, number two, knowing what you're supposed to do. Um, uh, but at the same time, not asking for help, not being afraid to ask for help got it got it um so knowing when you don't know even even from me um uh and and another thing that i really like my favorite nurses um and actually and this may just be because of me um uh those that ask questions about why i'm doing something because you know um because my take on this is and i think i said kind of said a little bit earlier if if you know why i'm doing something it's a little bit easier for you to follow through with it, right? Um, as opposed to me giving an order, and say, "Hey, we need to do this because of this." Right. So. Yeah, and I think some of those things that we were talking about, some of those cutting edge things that are not those sacred cows, those may be things that someone would say, "Wait, why are we taking them off the backboard so quickly?" Or mm-hmm. why did you say not to put them in Trendelenburg? And then you might have to to do a little bit of educating or updating. Yeah. Or, um, if I, or if I don't follow the ACLS algorithm word for word. Right. Yeah. If, if you were the physician or if you were just talking about, you know, just kind of your generic colleagues and you had a nurse who disagreed with an order that you that you had or your or your treatment plan and really genuinely felt like you might be missing something, what would you how would you advise them to approach you or what would be the best way respectfully, professionally maintaining that trust and that team relationship that we talked about without being insubordinate or. Right. So um, it's always. um approaching it with humility and with a questioning questioning attitude um it's it's not you don't go up and say i think this was wrong you should probably should have done this it's it's more of a i'm interested to know why you chose this um what was um what's the thinking behind that because i want to understand um and if it doesn't make sense again in a questioning thing um what would happen if we did this you know, just, you know, if you, if you come at it from a curious, um, I'm trying to gain more knowledge, teach me something attitude, as opposed to, I think you're an idiot and you shouldn't be doing this. 
um, it's going to go a lot better, even with that old commodity. Um, we won't name any names. Um, yeah, so what would happen if we did it this way or what would happen if it had gone like this? I like that. Mm-hmm. That's good. Mm-hmm. That's good stuff. Mm-hmm. All right. And, and that also comes from my side of it as well. If um, a nurse, a new nurse makes a mistake, um, okay, it happens. We all make mistakes. Um, I'm not going to, you know, you're already upset enough about it. You know, it's okay. Yeah. You know. You, you know what you did, right? right? You, you, and you'll never do it again. No, no, I, it's not. It's like don't ever do it again. It's like you're not going to do this again because of That's how right. you feel right now. That's right. Um, so, and 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 like I said, I'm I'm a little bit different than a lot of. Uh, a lot of physicians because I encourage people to come and ask me questions and that's probably related to all the stuff that I do on social media because because mm. um, it is a selfish thing if you know why I'm doing something um, it's a little bit easier for me to get it done mm-hmm. 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 I had a, a- one time when I was a baby nurse, I had a patient who started actively seizing, no history of seizures, no, you know, she'd been with me for several hours and all of a sudden grandma's seizing. And uh, so I was freaking out. The physician ordered Ativan. Uh, another nurse drew it up and handed it to me. He ordered one milligram. I pushed the whole vial, you know, the whole syringe of what was given to me. It was two. And I just doubled grandma's dose and I was mortified, thought I was going to lose my license and and my children were going to starve. And so I went to the, the ER physician and said, I, I just gave grandma two milligrams. I didn't know that's what was in the syringe. And it was a, you know, communication issue. And, uh, and you only ordered one. He said, well, I'll change the order to two then. Yep. And that was it. That was it. Yep. Grandma was super sleepy, but she didn't seize anymore. <laughs> didn't seize anymore and my that. children didn't starve. So uh, I, outcome. my loyalty to that physician, yeah, yeah <laughs> my loyalty to that physician was pretty much written in stone at that moment. Right. So he just erased my error. Um, that's all I got. You have anything else you want to add or tell nurses or come to work with me? Yeah, more nurses. Yes, <laughs> we all do. Yeah. Lisa, do you have anything? Any other burning questions? Any? No, this one was fun to just sort of sit back and uh, watch it all unfold. This was a lot of really good information that uh, I've enjoyed uh, taking in, and I'm going to think about it quite a bit. Uh, I do know that I will never let somebody use a backboard on me. Yes. They'll just tie you down tighter. No, no, no. They'll tie you down tighter and put an N95 over your mouth. Right. Uh, that, that sounds somehow worse. I'll figure it out. Hopefully I'll never be in that situation. Wait, so what was the thing about people sitting around the table? What was it called, it, guys? Uh, yeah, it's um, good old boys sitting around the table. So gobsat. Gobsat. Okay. Yeah. I got I to gotta, I gotta burn that in. Yeah, yeah that's uh, almost vulgar. Gobsat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. I like it a lot. That works for me. Very good. Well, Matt, thank you so much for coming out tonight. We have really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, I hope you had a good time. Oh, a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and we've got a lot of social media homework for you nurses. So go and get yourself a Twitter account. Uh, do the foam starter pack and start uh, start tweeting. Start tweeting out pearls. Yep. Uh, you can come see us on Twitter, or you can see us on our Facebook page, or at the keywordpodcast.com, or, of course, you can email us at the keyword podcast at gmail. Matt? Yeah, and feel free to follow me. Um, I need more followers. Not that I put a whole lot out there. Um, but yeah, yeah so my, it's, uh, it's my first initial, last name, MD. So M-A-S-T-I-N-M-D on Twitter. So um, Mastin MD, that's it. So, Love it. Um, trying to keep it short because of the character limitation. Uh, <laughs> that's so, right. That's um, but yeah, feel, feel free to send, you know, if you've got any questions, um, just, you know, hit me up there. I'll respond as soon as I feel like it. <laughs> 
as soon as I feel like it. Well, thanks for listening uh, to all of our listeners out there. And we hope you will tune in next time for another episode of the Keyword Podcast. Woohoo! Woo!